Hi friends, welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. If you're new to this podcast, each week I talk to a really broad array of interesting women about their journeys, about the advice that they have for others, about their experiences, how they've overcome big challenges and small. It's really about paying it forward. They are sharing what they've learned to help all of us, whatever our goals, dreams, and aspirations may be. Today's guest is no exception to that. Her name is Carrie Kampakis. She is an author three times over, a blogger, the host of the Girl Mom podcast, and also the mom to four daughters, ages 10 to 17. So she knows a little bit about being a girl mom. And her daughters are really the source of both her inspiration, but particularly her motivation to help raise strong, confident girls that grow up to become strong, confident women. I'm really excited to talk to Carrie about her work. Her latest book was released on August 18th. It's entitled Love Her Well. I have a copy right here. It offers 10 ways to better connect with your teenage daughter, especially in challenging times. And let's face it, right now is probably one of the most challenging times that many families have faced. I think wherever you are in your life, whatever age you are, whatever age your children are, whether you have them or don't have them, I think Carrie's advice and perspective will be really impactful and powerful. I'm going to talk to her certainly about her work and perspective and why how we raise our girls has a really big impact on the women that they ultimately become. So many of the topics that we talk about on this podcast from confidence to self-doubt to uh, handling negative criticism or feedback, among many, many others, really the source of how we deal with that starts in childhood, in girlhood, if you will. So Carrie has great perspective around all of this. I'm also interested to talk to her about how she created this niche and turned it into an entrepreneurial enterprise. So much, much, much to talk about. With that, Carrie, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm so delighted to have you. There are so many topics that I want to dig into this morning, but the first I'd love for you to talk about is how you got your start in this work. Well, it's kind of a roundabout story, as I'm sure most people's stories are, but um, I've always loved to write. Even, you know, you look back sometimes to your childhood and what you love to do then, and especially if I was feeling sad or had to get some emotions out, I always turned to writing. But um, I never really pursued writing. I mean, I pursued things around it. I went to college. I majored in public relations, which included some writing, but was also other things, marketing and advertising. Mm -hmm. Worked for uh, the electric utility here, Alabama Power, after college. Did PR for them. Um, went back to school after four years there with my husband, and we got our MBA. And that was a big challenge because I'm more of a creative brain, but it helped me use that, that other side of the brain. Um, so anyway, we moved to Huntsville. I did some freelance writing there, did some photography. And then when we moved back to Birmingham, we started a family. And I was doing photography at the time, 
but um, in my head, I thought, you know, one day I want to, I want to write a book. And it was always one of those things one day. Yeah. And my mom was a writer and she encouraged me to go to some writing conferences with her. So I did that. And what happened was everybody at these conferences were like 70 years old. And a lot of them had waited until retirement to start writing. And I thought that's going to be me if I don't like light a fire under myself and just actually start to do this. So I had kids at the time and I would really, I read a book that said only, even if you can only do it for 15 minutes a day, you know, just try to write. So what would happen is I'd try to give myself 15 minutes a day and that would turn into an hour or longer than that. And I realized how much I loved it. And really what opened doors for me, um, I spent years getting rejected, seven years of writing and fiction, three different fiction books, got lots of rejection, which I can look back now and see that I needed that um, just to toughen up a little bit. But, but that was before the internet. So uh -huh. what really opened the door for me was starting a blog and having the internet. And I had an article go viral. And it was that article that caught the attention of a publisher and opened the door to make it into a book. So. That's amazing. How did you deal with the rejection? originally oh, not, how did you keep not, it from, not well <laughs> but it didn't crush you to the point of not continuing to pursue the goal yes and you know looking back I, I'm so thankful for that because I look back and I think I, I'm so glad that first novel didn't get published it wasn't good enough to be published and I wouldn't want that out there so I can see that now but I couldn't see it at the time that I needed to grow in my skills and then also, I really, I'm a sensitive soul, like a lot of writers, and I, I really needed that time to toughen up and to really, it tested my goals. Like, am I doing this for the right reasons that I really love it? Or do I just want to say that I'm a published author? And I really realized that even if nobody's reading it, I still want to write. It's an outlet for me. And, and I think the biggest thing and what's really lost in our world today is it taught me about the art of failure. And I, now that my girls are teenagers, I, we talk about this a lot because they're growing up in a world where it, you, know, you think you're supposed to have success with everything you do. And that is just not reality. And with the creative things, I mean, sometimes I'm like, it can take a hundred terrible ideas to find one good idea. And it's like throwing the spaghetti at the wall and seeing which noodle sticks. Not many of them will. And so I think as a writer, you, you know, or anything creative, you've got to be willing to just put what's on your heart and put it out there. Sometimes it'll resonate, sometimes it won't, but it's never a waste, even though it may feel like a failure at the time. Absolutely. So it, it's interesting, you know, you, you, you oftentimes, people get this interesting advice about how do you know whether to double down on your strategy or to pivot, right? And you were pursuing fiction writer, writing largely before you got your big break as a nonfiction writer. Did it surprise you when this blog post went viral and ultimately it became, it became your first book? Right. It did. You know, I was so focused on the fiction writing. Of course, I just wanted to be published in any form, but I was at the same time also starting a column for a local paper here and it was more the nonfiction writing. So I was starting to enjoy that too. And, um, you know, I look back and I think it was just, it was just the direction I was meant to go. And now I've published three nonfiction books. And it's funny that I'm, I'm starting to have a heart to want to write fiction again. So I don't think those years were a waste. I do think I will try some fiction again. But, um, but yeah, to me, it was just like, what's going to get my foot in the door? What's, what's the opportunity here? And you're so right. It's so hard to know. How, how far do you pursue it and keep chasing it versus when is it time to just throw in the towel and try something new? But I, I'm just a big believer that I, if something's on your heart and you have a passion for it, and it's so hard to find those hobbies that we lose track of time when we're doing them. And there's just something to be said for that. And even I tell people, even if you're not great at it, the fact that you have a passion means something and it's not a waste to pursue that, that passion or that hobby and to try to get better at it.
Yeah. It's that whole notion of flow, right? When you get into that state where, as you said, you lose track of time, it's described as flow. You know that you're onto something that is speaking to you on some level, even if it's not a fully formed idea. Right. And I will say, you raised a great point. You made me remember this, that especially after having the two books come out, you know, it, it's different writing because all of a sudden as I'm writing, I'm thinking about, will this sell? Will people want to do articles on this? Like I know the whole marketing process that comes after the creative process. Mm -hmm. And that can really mess with your psyche when you're creating and kind of lead you in the wrong direction. And it was really fun with this last book that I did. I decided I was going to write it without even telling anybody about it. And it really helped me get back to my roots. And I didn't have a book deal or anything. I was like, you know, if, if no publisher wants it, I'll self-publish it. That's how much I believe in the message. And it was good for me just to have that quiet time alone at the computer and not having those pressures and expectations on my shoulders and not, you know, asking myself all those questions of like, will this be successful or will anybody want to read it? I was like, I just feel compelled to write this and I'm going to do that. And I think that's important for people to remember, especially as you get into the process and you do have, you know, some things under your belt that to really get back to why you did it in the first place and don't lose that, that love for it. Yeah. It's really that concept of dealing with your head game, right? That you can, that voice that lives inside your head that is, is a protector of sorts, right? That can right. also dissuade you from doing things that you know in your heart you're supposed to be doing, right? Right. Yes. That inner critic. And it can get loud sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you deal with yours? Ooh, I wish I had a good strategy. I just, it's constant, it's a constant battle. And, you know, I don't know if this is what happens with you, but like when I start to create, it's really fun at the beginning. And, you know, as you get into it, especially if you have a vision and you know exactly what you need to create or what you're working toward, but it's usually in that middle part that that critic starts to get really loud for me, that I have to really fight it. And it was funny when I was writing my first book, I, I called my dad, I was struggling with this chapter. I was, you know, I was like, I, I don't need to write. I need to quit. And I was like, but I'm too invested now to give up. I don't know what yeah. to do. And I've signed this book contract. So I called him and he was like, honey, you know, you're so hard on yourself. You've always been such a perfectionist. And I had to laugh because the chapter that had me stuck was on perfectionism. <laughs> and, and I was, you know, sharing the story of how I used to be such a perfectionist in college. And, you know, this is some ways I worked through it. And it just hit me that we don't really ever outgrow those weaknesses or the, that inner critic inside us that we learn how to deal with it and work with it and talk back to it, but it's, it's still there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, we could go in so many directions with this conversation, but I do, I want to pivot and talk specifically about your work and both, I think what you would probably, what's, what's a fair uh, conclusion to drive is that the source largely of your inspiration and perhaps your motivation to some degree are those four amazing girls that you're raising. I'd love for you to talk about how you think about using them as inspiration, but also protecting their privacy. I've read a couple of things that you've written about the importance of privacy. Maybe talk about how you achieve that balance of getting the inspiration from them, but not revealing any information that they would be embarrassed by. Right. And I think that is something we have to be so mindful of as they enter the teenage years. And it's hard. Um, you know, one thing, I guess one advantage that I have having four daughters is that sometimes if I share a story, I can say a daughter and nobody knows which one it is. <laughs> so that has been helpful. But typically what I try to do in my writing, and I made this decision early on in blogging, is to try to share stories about myself and what I'm learning as a mother. 
And I remember reading an article early on that said that these kids that all these moms were blogging about when blogging was huge seven or eight years ago, you know, that they're, we're sharing these personal details about them on the internet attached to their name. They said, one day these kids will be the ones who are blogging and writing memoirs and writing about their parents and they will have a voice. And if we don't want them writing about us, then we need to be really aware of what we're writing about them with their privacy. So I, I just always thought, and you know, as my girls have grown up, they've gone through things that I thought, wow, this would be a really great story to share with people. It would help a lot of people. And then I have to remind myself, that's not my story to share. You know, my story to share is my role in it, but that's their story to share one day if they're ready. And so I've just tried to let that be my philosophy. Um, if there's a story that I'm not sure whether or not they would be embarrassed by it or whether they'd want it out there, even if I don't name them by name, I will show it to them and ask them if they're okay with it. And even if I have a story with their picture or their friend's picture on there, I'll get their permission and just make sure they're okay with it before it's out there. Yeah. But yeah, I think especially in the teenage years, I mean, as anybody with teenagers can tell you, even when I post a picture of them on Instagram, you know, is this okay? You know, and usually with four daughters, somebody doesn't like something. So it's kind of hard to find a picture that they all like or post, but I try to be respectful of that. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about how that respect of their privacy directly connects with the trust piece, which is so critical when kids, I mean, really at all stages, but certainly when they become teenagers. Right. It, it really does. And here's an example. A friend and I were talking about recently that relates to that. She said that she, she's an extroverted person. When she was in high school, she told her mom everything, but she said it all changed one day when she was in 11th grade and she overheard her mom talking on the phone to her friend and the mom was telling her, you know, I don't know why she's dating this guy. She wants to go to, to Auburn where he's going. And it's not like they're going to get married or anything. And my friend said in that moment, overhearing my mom have that conversation, it made me feel so violated. And so she said, I still shared things with her, but never to the same extent after that. And I, that's what I try to remember with my girls. And you can have good intentions in sharing a story with somebody and it upsets them. And I had a, a situation a few years ago, my daughter and I were already in kind of a tense season. season and um, she had, had been in a tricky situation. She made a good choice in that situation. And I asked her, you know, what helped you make that choice? And of course, I'm hoping it was something I had taught her, told her, and it wasn't. She told me it was something that one of her cousins had told her. So I was thinking, wow, she only sees him a few times a year. That's great. That makes me feel good. So I told this cousin about that, just thanking him and didn't think anything about it. And then I get a text from my daughter a few days later asking me if I had shared the story with him because he had texted her an extra word of encouragement. And so that was such a lesson for me. She was, she was mad at me that I, even though that was, I was commending him, it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. She felt like I violated her trust and her privacy. So after that, I really try to be mindful about anything that I shared and with my daughters and just try not to jeopardize that relationship because it's hard to get that trust back once you lose it. Yeah, such good advice. Such good advice. You also um, talk a lot in your book about how talking about girl drama <laughs> and being sort of disparaging, if you will, about girls and sort of the emotional elements that kind of go along with raising girls can become almost self-fulfilling, if you will. Maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yes. You know, I think a good story to illustrate that was I have a friend that said, you know, I have a hard time trusting women at our age. And she said, a lot of it goes back to when I was growing up, whenever somebody was mean to me or did something, my mom always told me, you know, they're just jealous of you. Girls are mean, kind of fed her that narrative. 
And she's like, it just made me really distrusting of females. And I really have to fight to overcome that mindset now. And so I'd heard that story. And around the same time, I got an email from a mom that said, you know, I, I just did what I was supposed to not do. My daughter came home from school. She was upset. Uh, some little girls have been mean to her. And so I said, what comes to your mind first is girls are mean. And she's like, as soon as I did that, I realized I can't do that again. And it's the same thing as those cliches, like girls are bad at math. She said, I would never tell my daughter, your girls are bad at math. So why would I feed this stereotype about girls being mean? With that said, I mean, we've all been in that situation where you have your daughter, your son comes home, but especially when it happens with your daughter, is that that stereotype comes straight to mind. And it's true. I mean, it's, I don't really think girls have a monopoly on being mean, but we live in a mean culture. And, and some girls are very mean. Some women are very mean. But I, I, to me, I'm thinking if I tell my daughters girls are mean, that means they're mean, I'm mean. You know, that's the vision we're walking into. And I think, you know, they're not always going to be in my home. They're going to be out in the real world. I want them to have great friends. I want them to have support from that female network. And I, I don't want them struggling to trust women because of the few bad apples that they've met in their life. And so it really made me mindful of what we're teaching our daughters as moms, especially as they are hurt, to not reach for that low-hanging fruit and just go straight to the girls or mean cliche, to really think of a way that, okay, this is painful, empathize with them, but really find a better life lesson to bring out of it. Yeah, I love the idea that it really is an investment in their future. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole of parenting, of course, is about that, but, it, but I, I really have never really sort of thought of it in that, in that framework. I mean, it's an incredible... It's an incredibly powerful way of thinking about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the current environment that we're in is so incredibly challenging and it requires that not only do we as adults dig deep and find ways of embracing change, a new normal, just chaos, whatever you want to call it, right? right? That means we've got to do that. We've got to help our children to do that. Maybe give some perspective. I know your girls are in the process of going back to school. My kids are going back to school. Most people who are listening, kids are going back to school in one form or another. Maybe provide a little perspective around how you're helping your girls. You've got a senior in high school. This is a challenging way for her to start her senior year. Talk about what advice you're giving to your girls? Yes, that's a great question. And I wish I could say that I was mastering this season, but you know, just this morning, it was chaos in our home. And I, I just didn't feel good about how things ended as everybody left. And um, I realized I'm like, why am I so stressed? And I think it's because little things that I don't normally worry as much about, like, okay, I'm really trying to make sure they get a great breakfast before they leave. And then I come home from dropping off my little one and there's eggs still on the plates. And so then I, and then I know one of them doesn't eat at school and she's stressed. And I'm like, oh, you know, I really want to make sure that they're at peak condition. So I think it's just those little things that we moms carry that mental load that it's, it's making me realize why we need our mom friends to really empathize with us. I was like, I, I thought to myself this morning, I've got to call some friends today because I need some people just to listen and support me as I'm trying to be strong for my kids. And um, I just want to give a shout out to all the moms out there because we're all struggling and doing the best that we can. I know that, you know, some moms are having to be teachers and then they come home to their families. You know, it, it helps that I work from home, but it's still stressful even with that. So um, my goal is to try to be a source of strength for my daughters and just to ask them every week, okay, how can I support you? You know, I found that my older daughters, none of mine like online learning. I haven't talked to any kids who like the online learning. <laughs> 
And, you know, our, our system for the older kids, and I'm thankful they are going back to school two or three days a week, but it's a hybrid system and every class is different. So, you know, it's hard to keep up with assignments. It's hard to learn this new way of learning. It's a new system they're using. So, you know, we've had to get some tutors and every week I'm just asking them, what can I do to support you? Where are you struggling? What, you know, which teacher do you need to reach out to? Our teachers don't like the parents to reach out unless it's necessary. They right. want the students to do it, which is great. So um, just that and then basics like making sure they stay hydrated, you know, filling up their water bottles every day before they go back to school. And also just really thinking about their mental health. That, that's been a real big concern and their social interactions because you know, these are isolating times, but we don't want our kids to isolate themselves. And so really just making sure they have those warm relationships and that not only inside the home, but also with, with friends as they can safely get together with them. Yeah, you touched on something that I think is such an important piece. And, and this came up in a conversation that I had with Marissa Porges on a previous episode. She's also written a terrific book, but we talked about agility and how you help develop that in kids, particularly girls. She's the headmistress of a, of a girls school outside of Philadelphia, but how you let them advocate for themselves and um, you know, be the person who has the conversation with the teacher, work through their own drama, if, if you will, whether it's drama or conflict or whatever with a friend. Maybe talk a little bit about your thoughts around why that's so important and how we can sometimes as parents, as much as we want to protect our kids and, and sort of jump in there for them, that that may be doing more harm than good. Yes, that's a great question. And that was one thing that struck me as my oldest daughter started the middle school on parent night, every single teacher, and this was years ago, they talked about how they want the students to be self advocates. And it's, they're like, it's not like we don't want you contacting us, mom and dad, but typically the little things we want your student being the one. And for my daughters, it was hard at first, you know, they would complain about something or have an issue with the class. And I'm like, talk to your teacher. No, I don't want to talk to them. So I really had to coach them through that and get them comfortable. By the time they hit the high school, they're pretty comfortable with it. And that's one thing our school system does really well is creating these kids to be self-advocates. And they talk about how they do go off to college or start careers. And it really helps them because they know how to voice their concerns, voice their opinions, ask for help when they need it. And it has come in handy in this situation right now, just letting them, you know, letting them be able to take that lead and then us support them as we need to. And, and something that's really, I've been thinking about lately is, you know, I know that we might not be getting the school education we want this year, that it's not going to be up to par. None of us are operating at peak performance right now, mm -hmm. but I do think that our kids and the parents too, we're getting a life education that can really serve our, our kids well. And I think about my daughter who's going to college next year that she's learning some life skills about how unpredictable life can be about, you know, trying to be kind in a world that people are angry and upset, trying to get along with people, just lessons in resiliency. And like you said, pivoting and plan A is not working out. Okay. We're going to go to plan B or plan C or plan D and make the best of it. And, um, and I saw the statistic recently that said, 65% of the jobs that today's kids will have don't even exist yet. Wow. And, and so I thought, okay, so what are the skills we really want them to develop? And that's, we want them to be problem solvers. We want them to be resilient and to be creative. And those are all skills that they can still develop, even though school may not be what we want it to be right now. Absolutely. It's a really, really great point. You touched on something a moment ago um, that reminded me of something that you had written, and I don't remember whether it's in the book or in the blog post that I read, but it was about how as moms, 
when you have little, really small people, you've got a huge network of sort of a huge village to help support you. And that village gets smaller and smaller and smaller as your kids get older. Maybe talk a little bit about that phenomenon and how, what your advice is for navigating that and really creating this tight knit community that's for smaller, but, but maybe even more impactful. Right. And I think that that's something you find as your kids get older. And that's why parenting teenagers especially can feel so lonely. And it hit me as I was writing this book, I thought I'm pretty well connected in my community between having four kids and writing and just people that I know, but there are days that I feel lonely and I'm not sure who to talk to. So I can imagine someone who's new to an area or who hasn't found her people yet, how that feels. And um, I do, I think when the kids are little, you can, I could go to the gym and ask anybody, okay, I'm having trouble with potty training. Who can give me advice? You know, I would have three great pieces of advice I could take home and work. And then, you know, as they get older, it's more personal. You want to protect their privacy. Also, I think that you want parents who share your values. And so you'll see, you'll get different answers depending on where people are parenting from. So someone ahead of me told me that, you know, as your kids get older, your circle of your closest advisors gets smaller and more intimate. And what I've learned is just to be, I don't want to say be careful who I listen to, but really be, um, intentional and who I reach out to for help. If I'm struggling with something, I, I try to think, okay, who is, who is someone that could give good advice on this matter? And I've even called my priest before, you know, sometimes I call him and say, help me think through this. And that's something I wish I'd done when my, my kids were little. So I think for every person, it'll be different. For some people, it might be their sister or their therapist or their spiritual leader or their spouse, you know, somebody, but we all need those people in our life that can, you know, that know our children, that aren't going to judge our children or us as we share these personal things with them. And I've also found too, with each daughter, each of them have certain friends that I'm close with the moms. And so a lot of times those moms, if say, if it's a particular child, I might reach out to their friend's mom because she knows my child, she knows the situation. I know that she's going to give me good advice and they'll do the same with me as well. So my, my circle might look a little different with each child. Yeah. I mean, it really feels like what you're describing is, is a lot of what you've included in your terrific new book, which came out on August the 18th, um, 10 Ways to Find Joy and Connection with Your Teenage Daughter in this book, Love Her Well. Maybe talk a little bit about why this book, you mentioned that you started writing it, you didn't really <laughs> reach out to the publisher, you didn't tell anybody that you were writing this particular book. Maybe talk about why you were inspired to write this particular book. Yes. I, um, like I think I mentioned, I wrote um, two books for teenage girls back in 2014 and 2016. And it's really and speaking, those, those are books that are speaking directly to them, right? And this right. book is really more speaking to the mom. Right. And, and that's just where the door of opportunity opened was writing for teenage girls. I was writing for moms before that, uh-huh. but that opportunity came about. I started writing for teenage girls. It took me a while, a while to find the right voice, but after I did, I loved it. And I loved speaking to that age group. And what happened was I would travel around the country and meet their moms because it was usually their moms buying the books or bringing them to an event. And the moms would ask me, oh, this is great. You know, you took the thoughts in my head and put them on paper. She doesn't always listen to me. It's good for her to hear this from someone else. And then they would ask me, you know, when are you going to write a book for us, for the moms? 
And in my head, I'm thinking never because, you know, moms are a harder audience. And I thought, I'm, I'm totally, who feels qualified to write a parenting book? Right. And I thought maybe in 20 years, but not now. But what happened was as my daughters got older and they started going through the teenage years and I started struggling as a mom. And I realized there weren't a lot of positive resources out there that most things on raising teenagers is, is sad. If you Google teenage daughters and mothers or just teenage daughters, it's all negative. And it just really feeds that stereotype. And I thought, I don't want that to be my daughter's last years at home. And I don't want to parent from that place of defeat and anger. I want to finish strong and try to build a good foundation for our long-term relationship. So that was really the impetus. And, and then I just, I softened, my heart softened for the moms of teenage girls because I realized how hard it was. So I knew um, once the idea for this book came, I knew that I was meant to write it. But of, of course, within two weeks of starting to write it, one of my daughters and I started to lock horns. We went through a hard season and I really wanted to quit. It's that inner voice, that inner critic. Right. And um, I had to just stop and ask myself, like, am I going to accept defeat and feel totally unqualified? Or am I going to lean into this feeling knowing that this is how a lot of moms reading this book are feeling right now. And they're not expecting me to be a perfect mom. They actually will like it better if I can admit that I'm in the trenches with them figuring it out. So that was really the heart behind it. And also just knowing that it's not just the personal experiences I've had, it's the moms that I've been able to meet. I've met so many wise and smart mothers and women, and I see how much they love their daughters as they tell me about them or bring them to events. And I just think I've been so blessed to learn from them and it's helped my parenting strategy. And this is a way for me to pass on what I've learned to other moms too. Yeah. You open the book with a great story. It's sort of a mini, a mini meltdown in your closet, which if anybody's a mom of kids of any age, I think we'll probably relate to that. Yes. Yeah. I think that I needed to, yeah, just to start from that place of like, I've been there and I want you to know up front that I'm not a perfect mom and I mess up all the time, but that's okay. We all do. And we can learn from that and move forward. Yeah. You talk in the book about one concept is around knowing your worth and your value, especially as it relates to relationships. And that the way in which we coach and guide our girls in their relationships with friends also carries over to their relationships with significant others <laughs> later right. on in life and how they think about their own personal value. And it struck me when I read that on so many levels, including the fact that when women grow up, that so much of the time it is hard for us to know our value, to understand our value in an organization. In you know, you can sort of take it from the sort of emotional, personal level and extrapolate that into career and other areas as well. Maybe talk a little bit about your perspective on helping girls to know their value and navigate relationships that can work either in favor of that or against it, perhaps. Yes. You know, I, I read a statistic a few years ago. I think it was Mighty Girl, where I saw it published, but it said that a girl's self-esteem peaks at nine years old. And I thought, that is so sad. <laughs> like, I'm so glad these little girls feel good about themselves, but it makes me sad that the big girls don't. Did you see that in, like your own, in your own girls? 
Right. This, I think it's the self-consciousness that, yeah. that you see the most and the, the start to worry about what their friends think or what their friends will think about them doing this or, or this picture or whatever. And I, and I saw it play out even before my girls were teenagers. We live near middle school. It's, it's right across the street from us. And so what happened, my girls were at the elementary school at the time. So I would go to the elementary school. I see these kids. They're very authentic. They're all themselves. They're not scared to be themselves. They don't know that everybody's watching them as much. And then I'd watch the middle schoolers going to school in the morning. They're dressed like clones. They're huddled together. They have fear on their faces. And I'm thinking, what happened from elementary school to middle school? Like I could visually see it. And I think for girls that, and women, we're so relationship driven that we care so deeply about our relationships. And that makes us care what people think about us. Right. And I, you know, wrote, spent a whole year writing the book Liked. And it's basically about living for God's approval versus the world's approval. And I, it really made me self-reflect on myself as a people pleaser and, you know, how much I like to be liked and how good that feels. And so I think for girls that, you know, as they start to care about what people feel, and sometimes they care more about what their friends think of them than what they think of themselves, that those are the things that can really lead us off track, um, especially in the middle school years, if they care too much about popularity, you know, they might do anything to stay in the right crowd, even if their friendships aren't real and aren't genuine. And I, I think it's those little things that, that kind of put us on the path that helps us devalue ourselves and not really understand our worth. And so it's really important for girls to, obviously you give grace in your relationships, but also know that we all, they all have worth and there's a certain standard of respect they should expect in their friendships or their dating relationships or with anybody. And if somebody's not showing that respect, then they can still be kind to them but at an arm's distance, you know, at a friendly distance and to really be selective about who they let speak into their life, who is in their innermost circle and who they're trusting with all their heart. Yeah. You write from a perspective, you just alluded to it from a perspective of a person of faith. Um, as you write this material, these are not religious books per se, but you are writing from the perspective of somebody who is a, is a person of great faith. Talk a little bit about maybe the role that faith has played in your parenting. It's, it's really evolved. I will say that, you know, I grew up going to church, but I don't feel like my faith really took off until my 40s. And sometimes I look back and regret that. But then I think, no, I don't, because I, th I understand somebody who maybe is coming from where I was before. But um, I think with parenting, I just realized I'm like, a, I'm a control freak, like a lot of people. I like things to go by plan. And with parenting, I realized I can either live with my white knuckling it, you know, the anxiety and always worrying that if things don't happen this way, it's ruined forever, or really learning to trust God and lean into that and really, you know, find comfort in that relationship and the hope of Christ that no matter what, you know, what's going on with my family or my children or my life, that these things are for certain. And that's why, you know, writing these books for girls was really good for me because I'm teaching myself too. And, um, you know, and some of the things I wrote when I'm having a hard day, it comes back to mind is what I'm telling myself of these things I've tried to write about. But for me, I think it's just, you know, where, where are we finding our approval? You know, what is that anchor for our soul? And, you know, I think if we're trying to live to please people, we're constantly going to be overwhelmed and anxious and, you know, feel like a failure because some days people can like us, some days they might not like us. And it's just not how we're meant to live. And so I really believe that as, as parents and are for our children that we're meant to find our identity and as a child of God and those things that can't change overnight, like other worldly or material things can. Yeah, absolutely. Carrie, talk a little bit about the impact that you hope your work will have, not only on your own girls, but on, on maybe women more broadly. I think my biggest hope is that it will start conversations 
And, you know, I try to write even articles that moms can talk about over coffee and, or share with their daughters, uh, especially a lot of the things I, I write about, you know, we live in a hard world. I think parenting is harder now than even 20 years ago. And so sometimes as parents, it's hard to know, how do I address these nitty gritty realities with my children, especially as I'm preparing them for college or the real world. And it's just awkward. And so I'm hoping that sometimes that somebody can take an article or a book that I've written and start these conversations. And I saw it happen with the 10 Truths and Liked books that moms would say, my daughters, after reading this chapter, came to me and asked about this. And it started the best conversation. And for me, you know, I realize that if somebody reads my book or they come to an event, it's a one-time thing. It might impact them, but it's, it's not going to be a daily impact necessarily. But I started thinking, if I really want to help the next generation, I need to encourage and root for that relationship with the person who's walking beside them every day who loves them more than anybody else, who's always going to have their back, which is their mother. And so, you know, really trying to focus on those family relationships and building that community of women where we all support each other. And we, want to, we all want each other to have thriving relationships with our children and our spouses and the people closest to us. Yeah, I love that, Carrie. That's beautiful. I ask everybody who is uh, kind enough to join me on this podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra. You've already given us amazing advice, but if you had to boil it down to one thing that becomes kind of your North Star, something that you constantly remind yourself of, what would that be? Well, I would say, especially relevant in 2020, it would be the motto to know that we are meant to live with a spirit of strength and not defeat. And even though we feel defeated today, that doesn't mean we are defeated or that it's all over, that Today is just a small chapter in a much bigger story, and there's, we can always move forward and learn from what we've done wrong today and done right today, but still live from that place of strength. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I loved having you. This was great. Thank you. I love this conversation. Thank you. Listen, for folks uh, listening and watching, you can get Carrie's book, Love Her Well. I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, episode 116. Carrie, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. To learn a bit more about my guest, Carrie Kampakis, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 116. There you'll find a link to Carrie's terrific book, Love Her Well, which I highly recommend. It is the perfect book to read as your kids are going back to school, and especially for you guys who, like me, happen to be girl moms. Um, you'll also find a link to Carrie's terrific website, carriecompakis.com. As always, I am grateful for the time that you've spent with us, and I'd love to know what you thought about this episode or any other. Shoot me a note via our website at she said, she said podcast.com, or you can email me directly at laura at laracoxkaplan.net. Take care, and I'll see you next time.